0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP. This week, as the country mourns Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, we reflect on her legacy within the armed forces, and we look forward to what we can expect from King Charles as their new
1: commander-in-chief. He will take all his responsibilities as overall commander-in-chief of the three armed forces very seriously. But in taking it seriously, he'll take them forward with a light touch as well.
0: We'll hear what kind of man the new king is from someone who knows him well. And Professor of Defense Studies Michael Clark will guide us through what the Commander-in-Chief role entails. We'll also bring you up to date on perhaps the most significant week in the Ukraine war since it began, explaining how the country has recaptured so much territory so quickly and assessing what lies ahead.
2: Yes, we face the challenge how to secure the areas which now are liberated, but it's an inevitable part of any counter-offensive and it is included in the strategic plan.
0: First, over the last week, the armed forces have been carrying out their most important role outside of combat. They have been central to the ceremonies mourning Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, but also celebrating the accession to the throne of her eldest son Charles. King Charles III is now Commander-in-Chief of the UK's Armed Forces. One of the duties and heavy responsibilities he spoke of in his first address
2: as monarch. In taking up these responsibilities, I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set in upholding constitutional government and to seek the peace, harmony, and prosperity of the peoples of these islands.
0: Members of the armed forces who've sworn an oath of allegiance to the Queen also swore allegiance to her heirs and successors. So that oath continues unbroken, and that allegiance has passed to King Charles. Already this week, the first oaths of allegiance to the new king have been sworn by cadets at the Army Training Regiment in Winchester. So what kind of leadership will they have from Charles III? We'll talk to a former head of the army about that in a moment, but let's just bring in Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clarke. Michael, how big a part of the monarch's job is that role of leading the armed forces?
3: Oh, it's very important. And the armed forces repay that, of course. I mean, we've seen this week the armed forces at their very best in the ceremonial role. They have been upright, proud, magnificent and that reflects the genuine affection i've come across absolutely everywhere in the armed forces for the fact that the monarch is their boss they pledge to the monarch and the job of the uh, the queen and now king charles iii is to be the commander-in-chief and that also involves usually being colonel-in-chief of quite a lot of the regiments and of course the trooping of the color is the big event that is to was to celebrate the monarch's birthday the queen's birthday and that was really important and you know her majesty queen elizabeth she had a real eye for detail david richards when he was sent to the uh, chief of defense staff he said that she corrected him a couple of times on little details about how uh, some of the regiments need to be referred to and and what their precise titles were because she knew all of this it really mattered to her and you know if there was a single day when the modern British army came into existence, I was checking this this morning. It was the 29th of May, 1660, in front of Charles II. Because on that day, General Monk wrote brought the Coldstream guards down from Coldstream. This was after Cromwell, of course. He walked into London. He could have taken London and been dictator himself, but he didn't. He marched the whole army up to Blackheath. Charles II came to Blackheath and at his command, at Monk's command, they laid down their weapons, they took a few paces back from them, we've seen that repeated this time as well, this week, they took a few paces back from their weapons, they paused, then they went forward again, they picked up their weapons, and they all shouted, God save the King. And that was the day, if there was a single day, upon which the modern British army began.
0: Well, let's talk now to General Lord Dannett, who was Chief of the General Staff from 2006 to 2009. Uh, Lord dannett Good to speak to you. What kind of a man is King
1: Charles? Well, Kate, good to talk to you about this important subject. King Charles, we've all got to know him very well as Prince of Wales, and many parts of the armed forces have got to know him as being either Colonel Commandant of their army unit or um, holding an honorary position in the Royal Navy or the Royal Air Force. And I think all of us who have had that personal connection with him in the past will know just how committed he is. I would hate to think how many uniforms he's got hanging in his cupboard but hmm. um you know, we've seen him on parade as colonel chief of the parachute regiment when i was colonel commandant of the army air corps he was colonel in chief there and and really engaged uh, a member of the of the regimental corps family and i think that is the important thing that he and other members of the royal family they take these honorary royal appointments very seriously and it's the funny old tribal way that the british armed forces work we're all grouped in large families and any family needs to have someone at its head and the various members of the royal family and king charles will be absolutely there fair and square top and center leading all these various families and it's the family spirit of army navy air force units that brings everyone together gives us the motivation and actually is what helps us get the job done. So Mm. I have every confidence that from his past experience, the new king will very much want to play his role with all the various organisations of which he's the head.
0: And let's just talk about, or hear, one of the roles he carried out as part of his duties as Colonel-in-Chief of the Parachute Regiment. He presented them with new colours last year. Um, Let's hear what he said to some of those at that ceremony.
2: I must say, I find it hard to believe that it has been 44 years since I became your Colonel-in-Chief, and nearly 50 years since I made my first parachute drop, initially upside down with my legs in the rigging lines, into Studland Bay, Dorset, where I was uh, hauled out of the water by the Royal Marines. The colours I present today on behalf of the Queen continue to symbolise your loyalty and distinguished pedigree of which you could all be justifiably proud. Soon you will march off the square and will parade with your new colors for at least the next 20 years. Whether I shall still be around to present you with new colors when the time comes remains to be seen, but I look forward to what the future brings you. There will be challenges and you will meet them as you always have done, with the same grit, determination and care for each other that were the hallmarks of your founding fathers in World War II.
0: And Lord Dunnett, there's strong acknowledgement there of the weight of their job, but also humour and self-deprecation. What does that say to you about the kind of commander-in-chief King Charles
1: will be? What it says to me is that he will take all his responsibilities uh, as overall Commander-in-Chief of the Three Armed Forces very seriously. But in taking it seriously, he'll take them forward with a light touch as well. And one of the things that gets us through tough and difficult times is humour. Call it squatty humour, call it whatever you like. When things are really tough, someone always finds a way of making a joke which lightens the atmosphere and helps get the job job done. So what he was saying in that clip you just played is yes i take my responsibilities very seriously but um when you met, just alluded to going into studland bay upside down and having to be rescued by the royal marines that's um poking fun at himself that's where the humor comes in and i think that's one of the things that just makes our armed forces and our country so special he, he's already set out to be a fantastic monarch and he will be a fantastic uh, overall commander-in-chief of the british armed forces
0: And how much will his own military service, and indeed that of his sons, influence his role leading the armed forces?
1: Well, the House of Windsor is steeped in military tradition. So service is something that absolutely is in the DNA uh, of that family. And because they have these honorary titles, these honorary positions, and many of them have served themselves, all that blends together in a complete understanding of what discipline, loyalty, duty, actually all mean and of course we've been saying it so much in the last few days if you want the absolute prime example of duty just look back to our our late and beloved queen tuesday last week she did her duty in saying farewell to her 14th prime minister and bringing on board the 15th prime minister and two days later she was dead she was doing Mm. her duty to the very last and i've absolutely every confidence king charles will do the same as other members of the royal family who are working members of the royal family will do, will do the same.
0: And how much of a difference do the words and actions of the monarch actually make to the men and women of the armed forces?
1: Well, leadership is, is a funny old thing, but cut to the chase is about character and integrity. If you like the character of someone, you'll probably want to follow them. And if you have a high regard for their degree of integrity, that will determine the degree of enthusiasm with which you follow them. And King Charles, the other working members of the royal family, high degrees of integrity, and people will want to follow their example, I have no doubt at all.
0: So the armed forces they really like King Charles, do they?
1: They do. Um and we will increasingly do so. And he's being very self deprecating and generous in some of the things that he's saying. He recognises that he's in his mid seventies and will be our monarch for a number of years. He doesn't know how long. None of us know how long. But I'm absolutely certain that the example of his mother, that's the example that they'll all want to follow. And that's an example which we should all follow in carrying out our duty to the utmost of our abilities.
0: And what happens now to the military roles that were held by the Queen and the former Prince of Wales? Do they automatically pass the new monarch and new prince?
1: Well, that'll be something that the King in time will will have to decide. Just as they will have to decide about patronages that were held by the late Queen, patronages now held by the current King and of course the new Prince of Wales. So these are things that the hierarchy of the royal family led by the new King will have to decide as to who is going to fill what vacancies, who's going to keep what colonels, who's going to keep what patronages. It'll take a little bit of time and there will be parts of the armed forces for whom the Queen was the Colonel-in-Chief or Um, Honorary Commodore or Honorary Air Commodore, whatever it was, which will have no Honorary Royal person for a while, but we all need to be patient and these appointments will be filled. And then we can Mm. put our loyalty and support behind whoever is now filling those new appointments. It will take a little bit of time because there's so much else on the agenda and on the plate of the new King.
0: And how do you see Prince William fulfilling
1: the military duties of the Prince of Wales? Well, he will rise to the occasion He has proven to be an excellent Duke of Cambridge. He's patron of a lot of charities. He's patron of National Emergencies Trust, which I chair, and he's been brilliant in that role. I have no doubt at all that he uh, and his wife, the new Princess of Wales, will carry forward all their duties with the same commitment uh, and enthusiasm that they have in the past. It is intended, and I think the new King has signalled this, that the number of working members of the royal family will be reduced. So by extension means that those smaller number of working members of the Royal Family will have more work to do, but that's their choice. And we all have to respect that. It means that whereas this regiment or that regiment might have expected to see their Royal Colonel in chief once a year or once every other year, it may be rather less frequent, but it doesn't take anything away from the importance that they will attach to holding those Royal appointments and being the head of our family tribal groupings across the Army, Navy, Royal Air Force and Royal Marines.
0: If and as and when King Charles continues to reform the monarchy to make it smaller and more like those of our European neighbours, do you think it could, or indeed should, mean a smaller ceremonial role for the forces?
1: Well, I certainly hope not, and I don't see any indication of that. I think um, there are wider considerations, um, one of which is the pomp and circumstance, if you like, Uh, is an important integral part of the fact that we have a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy, of course, but it's right that we do things well to a high standard because that's the honour we should be according our monarch. And then, of course, there is the side issue, which is a really important spin-off, and that is when you come to something like the, the King's Birthday Parade next June, the Trooping of the Colour ceremony, It's really good for bringing in foreign tourists, bringing in foreign earnings into this country and cut to the chase. There is no country that can do state ceremonial and public duties to the standard that we can in this country. And I can see no argument that holds water to say, well, it's all a bit expensive. We'll do this rather less. State ceremonial and public duties honouring the monarch are part of the fabric and foundation of our country and long may it remain so.
0: And just finally, Lord Dannett, when you were serving in the armed forces, what was your most memorable encounter with King Charles?
1: I think it was probably, oh gosh there are several, but um, I think, go back to something I said at the start of this conversation, uh, when he was Colonel-in-Chief of the Army Air Corps and I was Colonel Commandant of the Army Air Corps, it was making many visits and and so enjoying it and being there for the 50th anniversary of the formation of the Corps. He was just so enthusiastic about his involvement with the Army Air Corps, as he was earlier in this conversation as Colonel Commandant of the Parachute Regiment and many of the other things he's been involved in. It's that personal attachment, commitment, enthusiasm, and just talking to individual people. Um, so to say and Royal Marines, every conversation makes everyone feel special. That's such a gift that the members of the Royal family have the Queen certainly had it, and King Charles definitely has it. So that's what we'll look forward to in the future.
0: Lord Dannock, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Kate. Michael Clark, let's just dig into the King's Commander-in-Chief role a little more. When it comes to politics, the monarch is head of state, but they have no choice in how they exercise that power. Is it the same for the armed forces, or does their role as Commander-in-Chief require genuine decision-making?
3: Some, I think, uh, as Lord Dannett said, the, the role of the, uh, the monarch and the royal family within the armed services is really important in representing them, providing a, a, a real colonel-in-chief and a figurehead. And I think the monarch can express preferences. Obviously, all appointments are gazetted, which means that they are approved by the monarch. I mean, the monarch, I, I don't believe, has ever interfered with appointments this side of the Second World War, but certainly preferences for... Um, how regiments will be represented, I think, are part of the of the role because the, the Queen took an enormous interest in the, the health of the armed services. And although you know she wasn't in a position to express her views on defence cuts or changes in defence, as it were the regimental and the, the service divisions, the Navy's arrangements and the Air Force's arrangements mattered greatly to her, which is why she had such an eye for, for detail.
0: And what about the King's role as the global face of Britain? Again, head of state, but leaving the exercise of power to his government. Equally in diplomacy, people and personal relationships matter. So how much will he influence our relationships
3: around the world? Oh, the potential is huge. I mean there are 26 serving royal families around the world of which the british royal family is undoubtedly undoubtedly the most prominent and that provides a sort of a a diplomatic network behind the scenes of people who talk to each other all the time and have various levels of influence with their governments at least they're able to talk to their governments and the the british royal family you know its brand value it's the third biggest brand in the world in the world Mm. behind google and microsoft and its brand value is estimated at about 67 billion pounds, 67 billion. Wow. And it brings in 1.7 billion pounds a year to the British Exchequer. And it costs about 350 million to run it. A lot of people complain about the cost, but they never look at the other side of the equation, you know, 1.7 billion. So yeah. um, it's, a, it's a very good uh, source of value to the country.
0: Quite staggering figures there. What kind of king do you think Charles will be?
3: I'm sure he'll be he'll be a monarch for his times he's not the same as queen elizabeth and he won't be charles has been much more outspoken he he wears his heart on his sleeve much more um, but that's in a way is appropriate because I think he will be a king for our times and I, I would expect him to uh, probably uh, adopt a little bit more of his mother's uh, uh, quiet stoicism as he as he reigns but we all know he is a beating heart very warm person who cares and the things he cares about that he talks that he cares about turn out he turns out to be ahead of his time on architecture and climate change and humanity and and gender politics and racism when people thought he was a bit peculiar in the 1970s and 80s what he said then is what is being echoed by many many people now and i think he will be regarded as a a man who was as a visionary in his more emotional and public attachment to certain causes
0: Michael, stay with us. And later on, we'll hear from veterans sharing their memories of meeting the Queen. Before that, we turn our attention to Ukraine, where in the last few days, the country has recaptured huge swathes of territory in the northern region of Kharkiv and beyond.
3: Liberating uh, cities such as uh, Kupiansk, Izum, before that Balaklia These were all cities you know, for which the Russian aggressor was fighting for months. And Ukrainian army was able to recapture them within a very short period of time.
0: That's Yuri Sak, an advisor to Ukraine's defense minister, giving his assessment to the BBC a few days ago. Well, in just a few weeks, Ukraine has gained territory more than three times the size of London. But how? You might want to take a look at a map as we talk this through. Joining Michael and I is former commander of UK Strategic Command General Sir Richard Barons. Uh, Welcome, Sir Richard. What have the Ukrainians achieved and how?
4: The Ukrainians have been very successful. I think actually more successful than they really expected in mounting an offensive in the northeast of Ukraine around Kharkiv, uh, which has very substantially rolled the russians back uh, in, in that area and in fact ukraine has taken back more territory since the 6th of september than russia managed to occupy since april so this is um, very successful and they've done that as a result of very good use of intelligence very successful deception in that they continue to attack in the south And they drew the Russians' eyes and reinforcements to the south whilst they positioned their force to attack in the northeast. And then in attacking, they've made very good use of the weapons that have been provided. But above all, they have encountered a a weak in, in terms of numbers and a very weak in terms of morale Russian opposition, which has crumbled in the face of a very disciplined, aggressive and thoughtful Ukrainian attack based on their enormously high morale.
0: Mike, just talk us through how the map has changed in the last few days and how Ukraine's achieved that.
3: Effectively, the Russians have been thrown out of Kharkiv province, which is to the north of of, uh, the Donbass region. They were holding some of it anyway, the Ukrainians, but the Russians then had to withdraw. I think this will go down as probably the Battle of Oskil River. Uh, which is where the Ukrainians pushed the Russians up against the Oskar River, and the Russians then had to withdraw to the eastern side of that river. And it isn't clear quite where the Russians are finding a a line that they can dig in for. They will dig in, undoubtedly, and the Ukrainian offensive will eventually run out of steam. But the Ukrainians have taken back Kharkiv, which is to the north of the Donbass. And the next question is, will they now go to try to recover Lyshyshansk and Severodonetsk? Remember, the Russians spent 101 days trying to, well, subduing Severodonetsk, so will the Ukrainians now take that back and begin to make real inroads, maybe even pushing down towards Luhansk? Um, we'll see how far this offensive can go. But undoubtedly, the Ukrainians are in a position now. They're dictating terms, at least for the time being, up in that part of the Kharkiv and the Donbass area.
0: And the U- New York Times is reporting that the UK, as well as the US, has been deeply involved in war gaming this counteroffensive. Does it look like a British strategy to you?
4: I am sure that the Ukrainian military are taking advice from a number of Western partners in all sorts of aspects. But at the heart of this, the Ukrainian military know their country well, and they have been fighting since um, February. So I think they have worked out how to use the advantage they now have, particularly in long range precision weapons provided by the West, to neuter the Russians' principal military advantage, which has been their ability to mass and employ huge amounts of artillery, both from guns and and rockets. And it's by targeting that artillery system that they have profoundly weakened Russia's uh, ability to either advance or to hold ground. But the key to this remains that the Ukrainians are fighting for their country, for their families, for their future. And many of the Russian troops don't seem to know what they're
3: fighting for.
0: Michael Clark, not all areas are equal. How significant is the territory that Ukraine has recaptured? Is it game changing?
3: Well, a lot of people being cynical would say, well, look, um, Ukraine is a very big country. It's the, it's the second biggest land area in Europe. So, of course, these there are big spaces. So what? The forces uh, advance through them. And it is also true that <clears throat> whatever is happening up in um, uh, Kharkiv and in the Donbass The more strategically important area is Kursan, down in the southwest. That's all true. However. Let's not forget that President Putin has made it very clear that that capturing the Donbass is now the restricted war aim of this war. So the the amount of territory that he now cannot capture in the Donbass is really very important. In a way, this offensive makes it impossible, at least in this phase of the war, that even his reduced target will now be met. So the world will see, and increasingly some Russians will be seeing, that they have achieved none of their strategic objectives this side of the winter.
0: Sir Richard Barons, we know that holding territory can be harder than capturing it. We also know Ukraine now has two big counteroffensives on the go. The one in the south is hundreds of miles away. How risky is the situation for the Ukrainians right now, given how Russia's attempts to advance on multiple fronts ultimately backfired?
4: So there is a risk in the north that the current Ukrainian offensive would overreach, that they would uh, move further forward than their offensive capability can sustain. And they may, for example, stretch their reserves or their logistics or their supply of uh, ammunition. And they will, of course, get tired. And if they do that, Russia will be looking for a weak flank or an opportunity to, to counterattack. But we haven't seen any sign of that. And the Ukrainians are, I think, very savvy about the limits on their capability. In the attack in the south, which is absolutely more strategically significant, there is a danger of rushing that offensive hurling quite untrained ukrainian new manpower at a city which russia will fight harder to defend and not succeeding in breaking in and taking great casualties but so far the ukraine military are very alert to that and they appear to be uh, running a much more patient strategy of cutting off the russian forces uh, in the south wearing them out and they'll pick their moment and that moment could be weeks or months away when they begin the assault uh, on on the city, but the bigger question for Ukraine is um, there is an awful lot of their land still in Russian hands, and they know very well they do not have the offensive military capability to take all that back, um, even if they are patient and they sequence it, unless they get an awful lot of help from the West in terms of political will and money and weapons and ammunition and training and advice to build from a very large number of citizens who want to fight a new offensive army that is at least in my view a project that will take until next year if they rush that then the russian military which remains um large and in its bones capable even if it has been astonishingly poor for most of this year then then there's a danger that they you know they they could set themselves up for failure i don't think they're minded to do that but what they are saying is they can win this war if the West provides the support uh, that they're asking for. And the reverse of that is if the West walks away because we're worried about our cost of living or whatever it is, uh, then they, there will be a stalemate.
0: And Sir Richard, President Zelensky says the next 90 days will be more important than the last 30 years for Ukraine. What would you be advising the Ukrainian army right now for objectives, strategy, even tactics over the next 90 days?
4: My first piece of advice was they need to be realistic about what they can do in 90 days with the forces that they have and recognize that the weather in that period will begin to change. And that it is much better for Ukraine to uh, put Russia on the back foot, as they have done in the north in the last 10 days or so, by advancing successfully and securely and avoid really two things. One is overreaching and being thrown back. And two is depleting the morale of their own people by engaging in operations which have unnecessarily high casualties. My final piece of advice is they need to be very careful in the way that they achieve success, because if they push Russia too hard, too fast, without remaining in step, I think, with Western support, there's a danger of a very assertive Russian military response, which may be tempted to dip. Into weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine. And that would be a very difficult thing to deal with, but we probably will have to confront it.
0: And Mike, you've told us many times that to maintain Western support, the Ukrainians need to prove they're not just losing slowly. Do you think they've just achieved that?
3: Yes, I think they have. I mean, people keep asking me in relation to this offensive, they say, is this the beginning of the end? And I say, well, no, to quote somebody even more famous, uh, this is probably the end of the beginning. The fact is that the Ukrainians have proved that they can win on the battlefield. And that's extremely hopeful. But as General Sir Richard has said many times, I mean, this will go into next year and maybe beyond. This is a pretty long haul. Uh, And so the Ukrainians can, as it were, go into the winter with some optimism. But there is an awful lot more for them to do next year if they're to reach uh, probably a ceasefire on favorable terms.
0: Michael Clark, stay with us. General Sir Richard Barons, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you.
1: Royal salute.
2: Present and...
0: Finally this week, we reflect a little on the military legacy of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. As Princess Elizabeth, she famously served in World War II as a junior member of the Auxiliary Territorial Service, working as a vehicle mechanic. In her 70 years on the throne, she met thousands of her servicemen and women through her hundreds of honorary military roles. And perhaps some of the most famous images of the Queen are in uniform at Trooping the Colour. Lord Dannett spoke earlier about the leadership role to inspire and support. One significant way she did this during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts was to institute a new medal bearing her name. The Elizabeth Cross is presented to relatives of those killed while serving their country since the Second World War. Her Majesty announced the medal in an address to the armed forces on BFBS in 2009. Wherever you are deployed in the world, you should be assured that I and the
5: whole nation are deeply thankful for the part you play in helping to maintain peace around the globe. In these present times, no less than in previous years, the men and women of our armed forces undertake their duties in the knowledge that danger often lies ahead. They know that many have died in the service of our country and that difficulties are ever present. With this in mind, the armed forces have recommended that for those servicemen and women who have given their lives during operations, a special emblem and scroll will be granted to their next of kin. I'm pleased to be associated with such an initiative, which is in keeping with the tradition established during the First World War. And so I have asked that this emblem should be known as the Elizabeth Cross. This seems to me a right and proper way of showing our enduring debt to those who are killed while actively protecting what is most dear to us all.
0: Well over 2,000 Elizabeth Crosses have been presented since then, usually by a Lord Lieutenant or a Senior Officer. But the Queen presented six of the medals herself 13 years ago this week. One of them was to Sharon Turton.
6: I received the Queen Elizabeth Cross because in 2007, my husband, Trooper Chris Turton of the Queen's Royal Lancers, was killed in Iraq. They were patrolling on the Iran-Iraq border. There was a daisy chain of IEDs. The lead vehicle, Chris, was in. Chris was killed instantly. Corporal Ben Leaning was killed. And Jimmy Jenkins, James Jenkins, he was quite badly injured. He'd only been in the army three or four years, possibly. We were married for two and a half years when he was killed. I believe it was the QRL welfare officer, he came round. He said, oh, we've got um, a Majesty the Queen coming. She's coming to award you the Queen Elizabeth Cross. So it was a real mixture of emotions of, I'm happy that I'm getting an opportunity to meet the Queen, but the reason that I'm meeting her Majesty the Queen is for something that absolutely devastated my life. It was really quite overwhelming. She was stood there in, in front of me. I think I was the fourth family, very nervous, trying to remember how to curtsy correctly and what to say to her, how to address her and things like that. But she made you feel so relaxed, it it, it didn't matter. I, I did mess up at one point and I giggled and she mm-hmm. sort of giggled as well, which just completely made you feel so relaxed. And I was beaming with pride for the fact that we were being recognised and Chris was being recognised, but also for the fact that I got Her Majesty the Queen in front of me and she was shaking my hand, little me.
0: You say you messed up. How did you mess up? I called her
6: mam instead of mom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's your roots.
6: It's my roots, I'm northern. (laughs) It's a faux pas, but yeah, she made me feel so
0: relaxed. What did she say to you? She
6: thanked me for the sacrifice that I'd given. And I said it wasn't me, but I appreciate the sentiment. She asked me about Chris and then asked me where we'd met. So I briefly told her that we'd met in our, in our hometown. Then she mentioned that she heard that Grimsby do the best fish and chips. She is, was so normal Everybody thinks of her being somebody who you cannot relate to or would speak down to you, but she didn't. So she really made it personal.
0: And how important was it for you, do you think, and for the others, that the Queen recognised your losses in this way?
6: It's incredible, really. I mean, you hear the Victoria Cross and the George Cross, but they're for the serving soldiers. This is for the families and For her to do that, it just shows what sort of a person that she was. She recognised that the families that were left behind had, I suppose, in a way, sacrificed as well because we'd lost our loved ones. And for her to recognise that, it it just shows what a really, really special lady she was.
0: And what do you think your husband would have made of you getting that presentation by the Queen? I think he'd have been
6: laughing at me because I was so out of my comfort zone, But yeah, he'd have been laughing, but he'd have been proud as well. I think looking down, thinking, yeah, that's that's my Mrs T.
0: Sharon Turton sharing her memories of being presented the Elizabeth Cross by the Queen. Uh, Michael Clarke, you met the Queen several times during her reign. What will your memories of her be?
3: well i met her a couple of times when i was um, director at rusi there were some ceremonial things that i was uh, went to but i also had the opportunity i had one of those lovely dinners and overnight stays at windsor uh, with just a small group of people and that was um, that was magical that was astonishing an astonishing 24 hours with them her and prince philip and i mean not to repeat any conversations but the thing that struck me most was that she was incredibly good at speaking to everybody. So as you're standing around with tea for afternoon tea and so on, she would walk from group to group and come and chat and uh, ask well-informed, interesting questions. In my case, she knew about Roosie and asking you know well-informed questions about Roosie and what we were doing and so on. And then she'd move away. And of course you see celebrities do this, but I've never seen anybody work a room in that way to make sure she spoke to everybody gave everybody a chance to talk to her, and Prince Philip was the same. And I've never seen anybody do it with such grace and poise and dignity as she did.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you, and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. We'll leave you, though, with some reflections and memories of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II from people who served in the armed forces under her command. Goodbye.
5: It's just really affected me deeply, the loss of the, uh, our Queen. I served in the military for 27 years and I was proud to do so. When you, when you spoke to her, you didn't, you didn't feel nervous, you just felt this calmness come around you because she was just so graceful.
4: Her Majesty was insightful, she made people feel relaxed, she listened, she engaged and it was just a privilege to be in her presence. I was
6: really privileged to meet her following one of the Sandown Military Gold Cups, uh, where um, SAFA was a beneficiary charity, and that brought together two of her great pleasures, which was, you know, racing uh, and helping people. So that that was a very
4: warm welcome. I met her after my injury. You know, when when we were meeting um, Her Majesty, my son and one of the other child was playing... (laughs) was visit is in uh, with the track in the, in the corner so yeah uh, it was it, it is great
1: as a young man i swore an oath of allegiance here in edinburgh to her majesty the queen her heirs and successors so the queen has been uh, a continuous thread uh, in my life uh, the backdrop to my personal life and to my military service i cannot describe
4: How honoured I feel to have met her personally during her quite remarkable life.